Dick just read the beginning of the account of the crucifixion, and there's nothing, there was nothing more scandalous in the ancient world than dying by crucifixion. A person was brutally nailed to a wooden beam, propped up completely naked on a highway for every pilgrim entering the city to see. And it was humiliating to one's family and friends to have a loved one hanging there for all the world to see. Not to mention how humiliating it was for the individual who was being crucified to hang there for hours or days, exposed like a piece of meat, struggling for breath, while bleeding profusely out of gaping holes all over your body, unable to do anything about the scavenging birds, It was a fate that was too disgraceful to be placed on Roman citizens. The visual of a human body fixed to a wooden cross, along with not only the visual, but the stench of personal waste and human decay would have been nauseating to those who passed by. It was so dehumanizing to the crucifixion victim that most people who viewed a crucifixion felt tainted by the experience. Listen to these words from Isaiah 52. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. One author described the crucifixion of Jesus as the most non-religious and horrendous feature of the gospel. I mean, understand what's happening here in this passage. Other authors have described the scene as godless in many ways. Nothing about this scene speaks to religion as it's unfolding here in the passage to many people. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The idea that a king, a leader, a rabbi, the son of God, the idea that anyone being crucified was some sort of person to be emulated or followed or held up or worshipped, that was a shameful thing to most people. And that's why Paul says this. It's folly. It's scandal for most people to see what happened to Jesus. But then there's also a second part of this verse. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's another group of people who read this scene in John chapter 19, who look at this, who watch it unfold in all of its horror 
in all of its non-religiousness, in what seems like the absence of God from this scene, there's another group of people who see this and recognize that something different is going on here. God uses this horrific event to put his power and his wisdom on display. Down to 1 Corinthians 1.24. Paul says this, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross, somehow, this scandalous scene, somehow puts the power of God and the wisdom of God on display. And here's what Paul means by this. God takes the preaching of the cross, the unfolding of what's going on here with Jesus on the cross. He takes this and by his spirit, he activates faith in those whom he calls. They hear it and the spirit uses the word of the cross, the explanation, the preaching of the cross, and the spirit activates faith in those whom God calls. And when he activates faith, they are able to see this whole scene in an entirely different light. It's no longer non-religious. It's no longer horrific. They're able to see the power and the wisdom of God in the scandal of the cross. And through all of that, as they see the power of God and the wisdom of God, those two culminate in the expression of the cross as the love of God for those whom he calls. And that's what we want to see this week and next week as we get into this passage. We study this scene of the crucifixion. We'll be looking at the whole thing for two weeks, John 19, 17 through 42. And this passage follows the words of the Apostles' Creed exactly. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So this is a historical event. This actually took place over 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. And because it's a historical event and it is reported here as news to us, something that actually took place, and we hear this news and understand that there are ongoing implications for us in our lives. This is not just about a man being brutally murdered 2,000 years ago and being thrown in a grave. This is historical news that has massive implications for you and for me in our lives this week, this year, and for the rest of our lives. And so here's what we're going to see from this passage this week and next week. Four powerful blessings that Jesus' death brings as God's promised Messiah. Now, I'm using the word powerful in this statement because of 1 Corinthians 1. The preaching of the cross, the word of the cross, is God's power put on display for those who are called, who those who are being saved. Hearing and believing these truths and, and what they're telling us changes us. It makes you a new and a different person. And even if you're already a believer in Christ this morning, hearing these truths afresh, anew, hearing what Christ has done for you, hearing who he is as the Messiah can once again bring change to your heart, change to your motivations, and change to your life. The Spirit uses the word of the cross to make us into new people. 
And that's what I hope happens this week and next week. So the first one of these powerful blessings is that Jesus suffers and loves others as the righteous king. This is in verses 17 to 27. So look with me back at John 19, verse 16. You can see there, this is where we ended up last week. It says, so he delivered him, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. He pronounces Jesus guilty, delivers him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. So look at the end of verse 16. So they, the Roman soldiers, took Jesus, and verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, this is probably the point somewhere in here where the dreaded scourging or verberatio is the Latin word for this, took place. I told you how there were probably two different beatings of Jesus in the crucifixion account. The first one was more of a whipping and said, don't do this again, don't get in trouble again. This is the one that I think probably took place here, the other gospels recount for us, where he was severely beaten. The flesh was ripped off of his back and he was in a weakened state. And then after that, they put a horizontal beam on his shoulders very heavy, and forced him to carry his own implement of execution to the place of execution. And when they approached, the vertical beam was already in the ground, already fixed in the ground, and stayed fixed in the ground, and was there waiting for him and the group as they arrived. Now, the Latin word here for skull, you can see it says the place of the skull. The Latin word for skull is calvaria. And you can understand where we get our term Calvary from. It comes from the Latin translation of that word. Look at verse 18. There, at that place, they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So they arrive at the place of the skull, Calvary. Jesus would have been made to lie on the ground and his arms were stretched out on that wooden beam that he had carried. And we find out from other gospels that Someone had helped him to carry. And his arms would have been nailed to that horizontal beam. And then that beam would have been hoisted up by the soldiers and fixed to the vertical beam that was already in the ground. His feet were then nailed to the vertical beam. And a seat was placed under him to partially support his body weight while he was on the cross. And that was not done as a way to ease his agony and make his suffering a little bit easier. Providing the seat for him actually prolonged his suffering and his agony as long as is humanly possible. So he's crucified. He's placed there on the cross in between two other criminals. And you can read about their stories in the other Gospels. But John is not focused on that. Instead, John tells us a story that is unique to his Gospel that took place. Look at verse 19. As the chief priests and Pilate argue over the inscription that is written above Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was normal to put the charge of the accused on the cross over them as they were being crucified. And they did that as a warning to others. This person committed this crime. Therefore, if you want to end up in this circumstance, go ahead and commit the same crime. That's what they're trying to do with this. Then look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. We've already seen the animosity in these chapters, chapters 18 and 19, between Pilate and the Jews. They don't like Pilate. They want to get what they want. Pilate is certainly no fan of the Jewish leadership. And here we find Pilate taking another jab at them by writing what he writes in verse 19. Look back there just to remind you of this. He wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The chief priests clearly don't like it written this way. Look at verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate, up to his ears with the Jews and their requests, tells them he's not changing it at this point. Look at verse 22. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So you can see what takes place here in the argument between the chief priests and Pilate and how Pilate won't go back on this. It is what it is. And that's the historical details of what's happening. But this whole episode is being used by John to function at a deeper level in the story. This goes beyond the argument between Pilate and the Jews. We've talked a lot in the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 19, 18 and 19, about the irony that John uses in this gospel to help us to clearly see the truth of who Jesus is. This is another ironic situation. The two different groups who argue about him and can't come to a conclusion on him end up here clearly articulating exactly who he really is. It's fascinating to, to recognize that the phrase Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, was written in the three main languages, the major languages that would have been used during that part of the world during that time. Latin, Greek, and Aramaic, which was spoken in Israel there. Some part of that, I think, indicates, John is using it to indicate that the message that Jesus actually is the king of the Jews is going to end up going to the ends of the earth to all of these different people groups in all of these different languages. And Pilate is writing this out of malice. He doesn't actually think this. And the Jews reject it, but the reality is this is exactly who he is. We've seen the kingship of Jesus argued about throughout the trial, and here we get a final, ironic, and definitive statement of his role as the king of the Jews. Now, when you think of Jesus as the king of the Jews, you need to keep in mind the background to this. This is not, coming into the Gospels is not the first time that God promises to send a king and that the expectation is that a king will come. You can go all the way back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 3. And the word king is not mentioned there, but there is a promise that God makes to Adam and Eve that a, a a seed, an individual, will come through the line of the woman who will ultimately undo the work of the serpent. And that promise shapes the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And the people of God look back to that promise and see that God is going to do some work through some individual down the road that will set things right. And that's exactly how Adam and Eve would have heard that promise initially. The work of the serpent's going to be undone, and God is going to make things right. But at that point, it's a very vague promise. 
Not a lot of detail in it. But as you trace through the story of the Old Testament, that promise gets more and more specific. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham to go out from his own people and to go into a land that God will promise to him. And what does he say? I'm going to send this seed, this promised one, through your line. And through you, your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so it gets more specific there. And then it gets even more specific in Exodus through the people of Israel, not just Abraham's descendants, but specifically through Isaac and Jacob and through the line that goes from Abraham to Judah and into the people of Israel in Exodus. And as the people end up in the land that God had promised to Abraham, we find more specificity when it comes to David, who's a king after God's own heart. And here's what God promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. When David, in 2 Samuel 5 and 6, takes Jerusalem and officially establishes his kingdom, God makes this promise to him. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, this descendant, As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God promises that a king will come in the line of David who will rule forever over God's people. And even as Israel is suffering in exile, after they've sinned and sinned and worshipped idols against Uh, in place of God, and they're in exile under God's wrath and judgment and punishment, God says to them, I will return to you. I will send a king to you from David's line. And when he comes, man, things are going to be set right. Isaiah 9, 7, talking about this Davidic king, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And amazingly enough, counterintuitive to what everyone expects, this king is enthroned and is made glorious right in this moment when he suffers as the king of the Jews. This is how he brings about this government that will have no end. This is how he crushes the head of the serpent. This is how he sets things right. And Philippians chapter 2 talks about this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a scandalous death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name here that is exalted is not the name Jesus, it's the name Lord, because he is enthroned as the king through his obedience and his suffering and his death. And all of that brings glory to God the Father. And in this passage, the connection to David and Jesus being the enthroned king of the Jews becomes even more specific with this little episode that happens in verses 23 and 24. So look there with me. Verse 23. 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is not disconnected from Jesus's ironic proclamation by Pilate of him being the king of the Jews. This is closely and intimately connected to that. Now clearly here you have these soldiers who are acting on their own accord, right? The Roman soldiers, this was a typical thing that they did. They would divide up the garments of the one who was being crucified and killed, and they'd take them, do whatever they wanted with them. Yet somehow, these Roman soldiers and their actions are fulfilling God's sovereign plan, and they're fulfilling the Old Testament. You can see the word here. It says to fulfill the scripture, which says, and then he quotes the scripture there. And so I want to try to help us this morning by asking exactly how does Jesus fulfill this Old Testament passage? Maybe this will help, this illustration, okay? I don't know about you, but I'm often cynical when a politician promises that they're going to do something if elected when they're on the campaign trail, right? They make promises and they say, we're going to do this, and I think, yeah, okay, sure, that's going to happen. Not because they don't intend to, I know they want to, but it's just very difficult to get those type of things accomplished. But that's sort of the nature of politics, isn't it? You have to make promises to get people excited and to get elected. When you're a politician and you're running for office, you want to convince people that you'll do certain things, but you want to convince them that you're going to be a certain kind of president, senator, mayor, whatever it's going to be. You want them to think of you in a certain light, that you're going to be a certain type of leader. Now, With that in mind, imagine if a politician came along and only promised or predicted that he or she would get elected. That's it. I promise I'm going to get elected. I promise I'm going to become the president. And that was the extent of their campaign. I'm going to be elected someday. And we would all say, okay, but what will your presidency be like? And they would say, well, I'm going to be president someday. And we would want to know, what sort of president, what kind of president are you going to be? Now, I think oftentimes when we read about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, we only think in terms of the Old Testament predicting that Jesus will be king. And that's true. And it does predict that. We only think in terms of, here's a promise and a prediction, and it comes true as Jesus is the Messiah. But I want you to see as we study this and then even next week as we look at further fulfillments in the crucifixion that the Old Testament does much more than tell us that Jesus will be king. We've already talked about that this morning and it does tell us that. There will be a king who comes. But these fulfillment texts are getting beyond just that he will be king and they're telling us what kind of king he will be and what sort of leader he will be, and what kind of kingdom will he bring. 
When the Old Testament uses the word fulfill, or when the New Testament uses the word fulfill in regards to the Old Testament, it's often pointing us beyond the bare facts that a Messiah will come. It's often giving us a much richer and fuller understanding of who he will be and what his kingdom will be like and what that means for his people. So, let's go back to this passage now with that little background in mind. When we read that the soldier's actions fulfill the Old Testament, we want to understand this is telling us about the kind of king that Jesus will be and not just that he will be king. So we want to go back and we want to read and understand the whole passage in which this quote comes from. So if you have your Bible, go back to Psalm chapter 22. Anytime there's a text from the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, you've got to go back and read it. So you've got to go back with me now to Psalm 22. We're going to look at this for just a moment here. Psalm 22, you will notice right off the bat, is a psalm of David. I told you, this is not disconnected from being the king of the Jews and the Old Testament promises that a Messiah and a king will come. So this psalm was written by David. It was written about his own personal experience. But David also knew the promises that a king would come through his line He understood that someone would come and would crush the head of the serpent. He knew the promises, and he knew that in some way that the future king's life would be kind of like his own life, and that there would be correspondence between his kingship and his experiences and the future king. He knew in some way that his life would prefigure the one who was to come. And so in Psalm 22, I think David is writing this about his own experience, but I think he's also writing it going, this this is the Messiah is going to come and it's going to be something like this. What he's going to experience will be something like this. And so there are two major points that David is making here in this psalm. First, he feels forsaken by God. Look at verses 1 and 2. And in fact, verse 1, John doesn't show Jesus is quoting it But the other gospel writers say that Jesus quoted this from the cross. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So David feels forsaken by God because of his enemies, and Jesus on the cross feels forsaken by God because of his enemies. So that's the first thing that David is, the first theme that David is describing here in Psalm 22, but there's another one that goes throughout this psalm. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What happens in this psalm is that David goes back and forth between feeling forsaken by God and trusting in God's deliverance and God's love for him. Look down at verse 16, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. There's our text. 
That's the forsaken part of this. And Jesus is identifying with David here. And now listen to Psalm 22, verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. When John says that the soldiers did this to fulfill the Old Testament, he's talking about the scope and the message of this whole psalm. Jesus is experiencing forsakenness by God, and yet in that moment, he is trusting in God to deliver him and understanding that he will. Look at verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So John is showing us here that Jesus' whole experience resembles David's because both are kings. Both are in the promised line. And yet... Jesus feels forsaken by God in a greater way than David. It's like it, but it's a greater way because he is suffering for sin. And God is going to deliver and vindicate Jesus in a greater way than David because Jesus is resurrected to new life. David is a type of Christ. He prefigures Christ. And you can see the similarities. The apostles see the similarities and they look back through the lens of Christ's life and they see how alike he is. And the connection between Jesus and David helps us to see, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but here's the kind of Messiah he is. He's a Messiah who feels forsaken by God and yet... Through that forsakenness, he is delivered and he will deliver others. And in verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord and he will be enthroned through his suffering. So, our first blessing, first powerful blessing. Let me remind you of this. He suffers, which is what we've just looked at. He feels forsaken by God and suffers as the righteous king. But there's another part of that first powerful blessing that I want to remind you of. He suffers and loves others as the righteous king. We've seen the suffering. Now let's turn where John takes our attention to his love and concern for others, even in the midst of his suffering, which is the very reason why he's suffering. Look at verses 25 to 27 back in John 19. Flip back over there with me. But, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. What an unreal scene. It's unexpected for this to happen. I mean, think about what Jesus is going through at this moment. Excruciating pain, unbelievable exposure and humiliation on the cross. And in the midst of that, what does he do? He turns his attention outward toward someone that he loves and he shows care and concern for his earthly mother. 
Now, it seems likely that part of the reason that he does this, the text doesn't explicitly say, but it seems likely that he sort of passes responsibility for the care of his mother over to John because Jesus was financially responsible for her. We probably, or traditionally, we've come to understand that Joseph had passed away by this point. Jesus' brothers, there's indications in the Gospels, his siblings did not trust and believe in him at this point. They came to believe in him after the resurrection. And so here he's passing the care and responsibility for his earthly mother over to the disciple whom he loved, to John. He wants to make sure that Mary is cared for. Now, let me just make a point here that is true, I think, of all of us. And then we'll consider this in light of what's happening here. Nothing turns our attention more toward self than suffering. When you suffer, it is natural and easy to focus on self. I find it hard to think about anyone else if I have an ingrown toenail. It hurts. It dominates my life. And so it's hard not to talk about it, which everybody loves talking about that. It's hard not to talk about it. It's hard not to think about it. Suffering tends to make you focus on self, to turn inward. But this tendency to focus on self doesn't just happen because of physical pain. It also happens because of emotional pain, relational hurt. Anytime we're experiencing a wound or some sort of difficulty relationally or socially or emotionally, it can cause us and frequently does cause us to turn in on self and think about self. Tim Keller puts it like this in the book that he and his wife wrote on marriage. When you begin to talk to wounded people, it is not long before they begin talking about themselves. They're so engrossed in their own pain and problems that they don't realize what they look like to others. They're not sensitive to the needs of others. We are always, always the last to see our self-absorption. Now, let me be clear here. I don't say this to knock anyone this morning who's been wounded because I think a lot of people in here are carrying wounds around. And I think that those wounds that you are carrying around can cause you to turn in on self and think about self and lack awareness for other people. But here's what I want to do this morning with this. Because I think what happens in this passage is so beautiful and so wonderful. And there's a reason John included this in his gospel account. First, and obviously, I want you to notice how Jesus, in his suffering, woundedness, and difficulty, turns his attention outward to others in love. He cares for others even in the midst of incredible agony and suffering. And this is exactly what we would expect. This defines his life and ministry. This is why he went to the cross in order to turn his care and his love out to others so that we can experience that. It's outward focus for the good of others. And then here's the second part of this. So notice what Christ has done here, but I don't just want you to notice it and try to emulate it and think, well, I've got to be like that. Here's the second part of this. If you are wounded or hurting, and we all are, 
We all walk in this morning, some more, some less, but all of us walk in here broken people. Some of you are carrying physical difficulties that I can't imagine. Some of you are carrying relational struggles that are beyond what I can understand, of how you're even functioning day to day in life. Some of you are carrying emotional difficulties that very few know about and that can dominate your life. If things are difficult and trying and you can't seem, to, even as I talk about this, you're like, yes, that's right. I can't seem to turn my attention outward and love others. If you're noticing that this morning, that you tend to be self-centered because of past or present hurt, then here's what I want to say. Jesus has taken your wounds on himself. He's taken those on himself. He did the very thing you can't do. He turned out in his love for you, and he absorbed the sin that you have done. He absorbed your self-centeredness. He absorbed the wound that has been caused by someone else. And he has done all of that in order to free you from those wounds, to take care of those things, and give you the ability to love others in the way that he has loved you. That's what the cross does. That's what this scene teaches us. And so I would say this morning, if you're a believer, your struggles, your wounds, your hurts, your difficulties don't define you. They're there. They're important. It's not to minimize them, but take those wounds and understand that Christ has dealt with those. They don't rule your life to the exclusion of all else because Jesus took care of those things for you. And it's only when you understand the gospel and begin to apply the gospel, the cross, and the love of Christ for you that your wounds can be healed. When you begin to look to Jesus, now those wounds are taken care of. By his stripes you are healed. And now you can be free from those things and turn yourself in love outward to others in joy and delight. And you can give your attention to others in self-sacrificing love as he has done for you. This is how John describes it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for this text this morning, for the help that you give through the work of the gospel. I pray that you would take these words, inadequate words that I've spoken, but you would take the power of the cross, the folly of the cross, that you would apply it to people's lives this morning. They would be able to see the outward-looking love that you have for us and how that love has redeemed, has brought back from darkness, has made whole and made new, how that love is personal and intentional from you, how what we read in 1 John is true. It's not that we've loved you. It's not that we've earned our way to you. 
It's that you were on the cross looking out to us. It's that you have initiated and have saved us and brought us into a relationship with you and healed us from the wrongs that we have done and from the wounds we carry. And so I pray that you would work by your spirit to apply these words to people's hearts in ways that I just don't know and can't do this morning. And we thank you for that work that you're already doing. It's in Christ's name we pray.